name's Olivia, and today I'll be reading Acts 2, 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' mm -hmm. teaching and the fellowship, to, break, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoyed the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Thank you, Olivia. That was beautiful. And if you have your Bible, you uh, are welcome to turn to Acts 2 because that's where we'll be this morning. Uh, but to open, I don't have a cute story uh, or some catchy question. Uh, I guess my quest catchy question is permission to be truly honest. Um, I don't know how this season has been for you, but it's been incredibly difficult for me. And uh, I think that as I've talked to people, some of the things that I've seen are the pandemic continues to wreak havoc on our schedules. Uh, we can't work the way we used to. I mean, we can't even work out the way we used to for those of us who did that. Uh, we can't do school the way we used to or it certainly looks different. Um, even hobbies and fun look different. We can't do those the way we used to. And I think if it was just that, I would say, it's all right, um, but it's not only been difficult, it's been divisive, um, it's been discouraging, it's been disruptive, and it's hard to see people who believe in Jesus um, being as unkind to others as people who don't believe in Jesus. So if you're here and you're not sure what you think about Jesus um, and you see Christians acting poorly, I'm sorry. Uh, Jesus is perfect and his people are not always perfect. Uh, it's, it's like we're forgetting that the person that sits across the table or that human who has a different perspective than we do, that they're made in the image of God and they're dearly loved by him. Uh, it's hard to see people of color, whether they're my friends or not, being dismissed and ignored, sometimes by Christians. And that just doesn't feel like good news. So, ha, huh, I wanted to be honest. It doesn't feel like good news. But it's my reality, and my guess is it's yours too. Uh, now, please don't walk out, because it's not the only news. I, I believe and I've seen across the country, across our city, and across the globe, believers in Jesus are not giving up in surrender. They're not rising up in revolt. Instead, they are crying out to God in worship and in prayer, and it is beautiful. They're being a bright light to their neighbors and even their enemies with words of hope and acts of love, and it is so good to see, and I want to be part of that movement, and I want to invite you to be part of that movement, but if we're gonna do that, I think we have to rethink our methods. So if God has truly designed us 
to make a difference, which I believe he has, and that starts with knowing who we are, and it, it starts with knowing the power that we have, then it follows that God doesn't just want us to know who we are or the power we have. He wants us to do something with that. And our reading today could be a familiar one to you. It could be one that you've heard before or seen before. Maybe you've heard other churches or even our church talk about it as the practices of the church. But it almost ignores the context when we say that. And the context is what dictates that interpretation and even possibly the application. And so I want to give us a little context to our scripture reading today. First of all, Jesus has been in this committed community of the 12, which is actually now 11, not just because Jesus is gone, but because one apostle took his own life. And then there were more. It might have been the 72 that Jesus commissioned in Luke 10. It might have been his close friends like Martha and Mary and Lazarus. It might have been the women who supported him in his ministry um, along the way. We don't know exactly who they were. We just know that there were 120 that were meeting in the upper room after Jesus' resurrection, after, his, after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, he appeared to them over the period of 40 days. He told them to wait in Jerusalem. And we know that this day of Pentecost, this Pentecost festival was happening about, fi- not about, actually 50 days after Passover. And Passover was, was just days before Jesus' resurrection. So if you know your Jewish history, like, it's all overlapping with your Christian history. And if you don't know Jewish history, then, you know, we don't have to spend a lot of time there. But 50 days after Passover is Pentecost. Pentecost was just days away from when these 120 were meeting and praying and worshiping. They were choosing new leaders um, because they had to replace an apostle. They were They were coming together, praying in unity, praying in power, and then one day, as they were praying in this unity and this power, it happened to be the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends on the room, there's a loud noise, there's a strong wind, and like, all pandemonium is breaking loose, there's power that's happening, the the scripture's described as tongues of, of fire on their heads, which... I don't think it's literal, but it had to be pretty cool. And what happened is people from all over the Roman Empire, they rushed in to see what was going on, but they were already there because of this festival. So they rushed towards that upper room. They were from all over the Roman Empire, which means they had different languages they spoke, different things that they did. And so they heard these people speaking in their own language. Even though they were these Galileans speaking in this Galilean dialect, they were like, wait, we understand them in our own language. How can this be? They've got to be drunk. And Peter's like, he stands up and he says, we're not drunk. And he gives this impassioned speech. And he talks about how they rejected Jesus, how he's the Messiah, and how they can now turn from their sin and their selfishness and come to Jesus. And 3,000 people come to Jesus. It was amazing. But it was a complete disruption. And the writer then includes this summary from Acts 2, 42 through 47, which Olivia read. Now, we can see it as what the church is supposed to do, but I think we can see it as what I believe it is and was this radical experiment to adapt their methods so they could stay on mission so they wouldn't miss the masses. 
They needed to adapt their message because, again, 3,000 people is a disruption. It's a good disruption, but it is a disruption. All of a sudden, things had to look different, and they had to figure it out. Think about it. A church of 3,120 operates very differently than a church of 120. No longer could they meet in the upper room. They had to figure out a new way to gather. They also had to figure out new ways to meet people's needs. You can go read Acts 6 if you're like, hey, we'll just bring stuff in. We'll let people share it. They'll figure it out. No, then there was systematic discrimination that happened. They had to figure out a new way to do that if they're going to share resources and share um, food in this large group. They had to adapt their methods so they wouldn't miss the masses. They had to determine what was going to be most important and how to do that to function and flourish in this new reality so that the mission could continue, so they could continue to make room for one more that God already loved and one more that God already loved and maybe 3,000 that God already loved. That is still the mission. Now, we may not have 3,000 new believers in this room, but COVID-19 and the health pandemic that has come with it has forced us as the, the big church to adapt our methods so we don't miss the masses. Because, friends, the world needs the church now more than ever. I mean, they really do. This disruption of 2020 has showed us how angry and isolated and fragile we are as a culture. We are not as resilient as we thought we were. I think we could learn things from the global church in that regard. I think we're more divided and tribal than we've been in 200 years, maybe more. And, and some people are saying, uh, this one super convicted me two weeks ago. Do you like that language? Super convict. It super convicted me. Uh, I was listening to some church leaders talk about the pandemic, and um, this man was from Australia, this pastor, and he said, shame on us if our kids or our grandkids ask us what we did during the great disruption of 2020, and all we can list is the Netflix shows we binge-watched. Now, friends, I like me a good episode of The Office or Cobra Kai. I'll, I'll admit it, but it's an episode. I know that there's greater work than watching TV. And I know some of you had taken vacations, and I desperately want vacations, but I also realize that there is not enough vacation time for any of us in a prolonged crisis. We just can't be sustained by vacation time. We need something more than that. We need the right rhythms, the right methods, and the right practices in the midst of this disruption because otherwise we revert back to something that didn't work as well as it used to anyway. And then we miss reaching people. So my encouragement is for us to see Acts 2, 42 through 47 as this radical experiment to adapt the methods to meet and reach people because people have always been God's mission. He has always wanted to restore humanity to himself. And so I want us to look at these. I see four rhythms in this text. And I want to look at how they might still speak to us 
today. The first that I see is that they adapted to this rhythm of growth. It says that their, their, well, before we read the Acts 2 part again, their previous method of growth was listen to Jesus, follow Jesus, do what Jesus did. But now Jesus isn't physically there anymore, so they have to figure out a new way to go. So they adapted. They gave their full attention to the apostles' teaching, to the common life, it says, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And it wasn't just the new believers that did this. No, it was all the believers. They lived this growth through teaching, through praying, and through sharing of meals. Now, why teaching? Well, not everyone could read. And in a time where even if they could read, they didn't have a lot of access to books. And that doesn't necessarily translate the same way to our time. Even though we have access, I think we have too much access. And so we don't live in this place where we can't get it. We have access to where we get too much and we're distracted by too much. And so it's the same focus. It's just coming from a different angle. It means a consistent routine of getting into God's word, whether it's a leather-bound book, whether it's a screen on your phone, or whether it's an audio recording. We need God's word. It's why I'm so excited to jump into Immerse and to read together, to dive into the scripture, to give long periods of time to see the big story, because when we don't give our attention to lifelong learning and teaching, we regress to whatever the perspective or worldview of the culture is. And that's been true time and time again. You can read history. So why prayer? If that's teaching, why prayer? Prayer is our direct communication with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Prayer is where the divinity intersects the humanity in our world, and God wants us to live there. Why meals? Well, we need sustenance, not just in food, but also in relationships. Meals are where we share a life with people. Even in the pandemic, we can find ways to share community and share meals. So I think we need this rhythm of growth more than ever. And I don't say this to shame or guilt anyone. It just seemed like a really simple explanation. Like, you and I need more than an hour's worth of eating a week. If we only ate one hour a week, we would starve. We need more than one hour of sleep. We need more than one hour a week of exercise. These are things we do to stay healthy. Why would we not need more than one hour of spiritual growth a week? So if you are online right now, we would love to hear how you are growing in your relationship in this rhythm of growth, what you're doing, learn from us. If you're here, I don't want to crash the internet, but you could go in and you could share your comments too because I think we can learn from one another. They're not all this long, but the first one is adapting to a rhythm of growth. The second one is adapting to a rhythm of grace. I see in this that when they came together, they held things in common. There was an awe and a wonder that happened around them. That was God's grace. That wasn't just miracles. There was... Uh, a thankfulness and a gratefulness that when they shared their, their food, but also their homes and their hearts. There was, they didn't see their perspectives or their possessions as their own, but they held things in common. You can't hold your perspective by, to yourself and then not try to hold things in common. 
See, I think life in this rhythm of grace went beyond the religious rituals and rules to this extravagant hospitality and this eager prayer. I think we need this rhythm of grace now more than ever. We need to accept community where we can be authentic, where we can tell people actually where we're at, but then we can extend grace to one another. And it's not just our grace, it's God's grace because God doesn't expect us to be perfect so we don't have to be, but then we don't have to expect others to be perfect either. So just one of the ways that, I try to do, that I've tried to do this in the last few weeks of this rhythm of grace is when a friend tells you something difficult, Think about what you say to them. If a friend tells you something difficult, do you say, like, ooh, that's rough. I'm sorry you're in that. That, You could say that. That's getting towards empathy. Um, Friend tells you something rough, and instead you say, ooh, that sounds hard. I really want to pray for you. Empathy, but also bringing it to divinity, because God probably has something wise. Or, ooh, That sounds rough. Can I pray for you right now? I had uh, two different friends this week, at two different times this week, um, when I shared something hard, they said, wow, that sounds hard. Um, Can I ask God what you might need? And then they prayed for me in that moment. Both people said I needed the same thing. Friends, I was... I was astonished and so grateful. So grateful. It doesn't just have to be these times when something's difficult. We can even do this as parents. If you have, if you have young kids in your home or even if you have uh, teenagers or adult kids in your home, you can do this around mealtime. It doesn't just have to be, dear God, thanks for the food, amen. It could be like, Lord, we, we thank you for providing for us. And we admit that you're always the provider for us. And forgive us when we think that we've provided in our own strength. Help us to see where you're at work and join you in it. It can be as simple as that prayer. Meals are this time of great reinforcement that we can do for each other, not just for kids. I mean, this rhythm of grace is actually about seeing what God has given us and then sharing it with others. We need that rhythm. Third, they adapted to this rhythm of groups. In Acts 2, 46, it says that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and then they broke bread in their homes. There was this rhythm of going to the courts and then going to the homes. The courts were a place that actually 3,120 people could meet. There was plenty of space there. It was bigger than several football fields, but they couldn't. And and when we're in those big spaces, we can have, um, we can share our gifts and our service, and it can have a larger impact. But in the smaller places and the smaller groups, it's easier to be seen and to identify our gifts and to grow in authentic relationships. Because you can't have authentic community with a group of 3,120. If you want to actually accept that community, we have, we have to discern, like they did, what size groups are feasible and applicable for the life and the desires that God has for us. We need p- places where we can be seen and known and share our gifts. 
and, and share in that teaching because even if, you, no matter how you're getting your teaching, if you're just consuming information in isolation, it's not going to lead to transformation. We've got to consume information in community so it can lead to transformation. And then finally, they adapted to a rhythm of generosity. It says they sold their possessions and belongings. They divided them up to everyone who was in need. They didn't see their stuff as theirs. Now, it, the commentators have looked at this. The scholars have looked at this. They didn't sell the homes they were living in, and they're like, okay, we shared. Now someone needs to give us a place to live. <laughs> they had extra homes or extra land that was incredibly valuable. The land to the Jewish people was incredibly valuable, but in those moments, they said, we have what we need, we need to share. And over and over, this was part of what they did. Even though it was extra, this rhythm wasn't extra. This rhythm wasn't optional. Generosity isn't optional. Generosity is a posture of our hearts. And And actually, it was this essential practice that caused the surrounding religious and secular communities to take notice. It was this attractive piece to them. So I don't want to say I know exactly what this means for you or for us, but I want you to think about what it would look like for you to trust God with all of your resources and live in that kind of freedom. Not just, God, you get a little on Christmas and Easter, or God, you get this 10%, and I get to control this 90%, but God, it's all yours to control. What do I need? What do I need to give away? Because it's all yours. Because when you see yourself in these practices, when Jesus is a part of it, when, when you're like these first believers in this this growth and grace and groups and generosity, what you find is you actually have a new energy. You have a favor with God and with people, not because you're trying to please them, but because you are living it and celebrating it and sharing it in ways that transform others. And the it is the alternative to the culture that you're in. See, I think when we're surrounded by division, the church has to bring the unity. And when we are in the midst of isolation, the church, we build community. And when we're in this world that is celebrating cynicism, the church has to choose joy. And when the world rushes and can't stop, even when it's forced to to stop, the church can bring rest and peace. And when the world turns to hate, the church, friends, the church must embody love. This is what we're called to do. And this is the church that will be seen and listened to in this prolonged moment. There's been years and seasons where the church has been ignored or considered irrelevant. And I believe with all of my being, that the church that does these things will be needed and noticed. Friends, God's good news has not changed. 
His grace has not been lost. His power is not forgotten. And his people still need hope. All people need hope. Now more than ever. We've got to keep adapting our methods so that we don't miss these masses of people. And as we do adapt these methods of growth and grace and groups and generosity, we will see transformation in our own hearts and in the world. So in a time where we're challenged to gather in large groups, we need to adapt. It's why we started this rhythm of in-person and online. It's why this week we're starting to do these small groups in uh, Zoom calls in people's backyards, in people's living rooms that can do it safely. And to read together. If you don't have one of these books, um, I encourage you to go to the back. If you're in person, go to the back table. Daniel's back there. He can give you one of those books for free. If you already have one, he can just give one to you for $5. If you're online, email groups at restorationcub.org or text Daniel. I think the think it's going to be on the screen. Look at that. It's on the screen. Um, And if you're like, I don't know, it's a lot of book. It's big. And the books are scary. I've tried to read through the Bible in a year. I get stuck in Leviticus. Like, do as much as you can. Listen to the audio if reading is hard. Um, Don't sweat it if you get behind Ask God to speak to you as you read it and however much you get through, get into a group and share how God has spoken to you. It's, it's really that simple. It's not easy, but it really is that simple. We're going for the big story of how God worked. These are books that Jesus quotes over and over and over. It's the story he sees himself fulfilling and finding himself in, and so we need to understand it. I think also this just prompts us as a community to say, hey, how do we need to adapt our staff? How do we need to adapt our practices, um, our rhythms, so that we can do these rhythms? So my prayer and my my work and my action is that you're going to start seeing more ways to engage with Jesus and with his church, not just for us, but for those who are seeking new life and those who want to make a difference in the world. So even at a time where it looks different, we're going to try to do more. And you might wonder, like, is that really wise? Should we really do more? What if people are tired or the season is challenging? And it is challenging. But I was so challenged um, by just a piece of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's biography. Uh, He's a German pastor. Charles Marsh wrote it in 2014. It's called Strange Glory. And he's recalling how Hitler rose to power and how Dietrich Bonhoeffer interacted with that. And as Germany was super despondent over the defeat of World War I and the subsequent economic depression, they were desperate for answers as a people. And that's when this charismatic leader named Adolf Hitler came into attention and power. And actually, to most Germans, he appeared to be the answer to their prayers. There were even several spiritual leaders that said this, and I quote, Christ has come to us through Adolf Hitler. Not everyone was convinced, 
and Bonhoeffer was not convinced. In fact, he was teaching and training pastors in a seminary that had to go underground as Hitler came into power. It was called Finkenwald. And one of Bonhoeffer's friends came to observe the seminary. And as he watched them interact and do their classes, he said, Dietrich, this is too intense. It's super spiritual. You've got to scale it back. And so what Bonhoeffer did is he took them down to the nearby river. They got in a boat and they rowed a little ways down the river and across to where Hitler was training troops. And they got up on the bank. In the distance, they could see the training facility. They could see where the officers were training the soldiers. And then Bonhoeffer talked about a seminary. And he basically said, what we're doing at the seminary has to be stronger than what Hitler is doing with these troops. Our formation has to be stronger than their formation. We need to raise a generation of Christians whose formation is stronger than the Third Reich. And then they rode back. Now think about it. Hitler wreaked havoc on the world. His regime killed millions, especially Jews, His officers eventually arrested and executed Bonhoeffer. But whose mission endured? He may have died, but whose mission endured? The seminary was shut down. Half the leaders signed allegiance to Hitler, and many others were arrested. But you fast forward 70 years... Now, Bonhoeffer's a hero. His books have inspired millions. A German church is deeply repentant, and the country of Germany has paid billions in reparations to Israel. Bonhoeffer's formation was stronger. And it wasn't Bonhoeffer. It was Jesus Christ and his spirit working through a rhythm and a practice where people were changed into the image of Christ and brought his glory and goodness into the world, even the darkest, most powerful, evil places in the world. Friends, it's not the size of the power. It's the potency of the power. I think Jesus will take 12 people that he knows will get it wrong that will be sold out to him. And he'll say, okay, God, I'll do what you said. This will change the world. So please, engage in these rhythms. Join us in figuring out how to adapt these methods so that we can have growth and grace and groups and generosity, not just for us, but for the world that needs it out there too. Will you pray with me? (sighs) Heavenly Father, I thank you that you continue to use imperfect people to be your channels of goodness and blessing in the world. God, help us to radically experiment in a time and a disruption to be your people, to think in new ways, to take new risks, to have formation that is stronger than the evil around us. God, as we're invited to the communion table, I pray we would sense your presence with us, that we'd receive your grace, that we'd receive your truth, that we'd receive your love. God, speak to us 
about these rhythms, about what we need in this moment. Thank you that, that Peter gave this call that was not just for the people listening or for their children, but to all who were far off. I believe that includes us today. So God, if we've never turned our heart towards you, God, we turn our heart towards you now. We can't do it on our own. We were never meant to live on our own. And so we say, Jesus, I trust you with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. God, forgive me for the ways that I've led in sin or selfishness and lead me back to you. I want your joy and your goodness and your grace and your peace and your power to flow through me so that others might know you.